perfection of that. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to... Oh, man, I already messed this up. What game is it? What did three. Game three? Did we just yeah, finish game, game three. three? Yep. Okay. Game three of the 2023 NBA Finals. The fatigue is starting to wear me down, going back and forth from Miami. It was, we were in Denver. It was a mile high. Now we're in Miami. You're right on the water. You're probably under the water these days, thanks to the changes in the global climate that nobody seems to nobody seems to care. And poor New York is is getting the Southern California treatment. No one seems to care about that. Do you have that thing with your friends where you're like, "Hey, clean air would be nice," and they're like, "What are you talking about? You're being so extreme." Do you ever have that? Well, I don't think anyone at any point anywhere knows what clean air is. Like maybe there's a little spot. In, in Montana, maybe you escape it. But beyond that, I don't know, Ben. Everyone's just like, this is just what the air is. That's spoken like a true Midwesterner who uh, is not familiar with the, with the cool ocean breeze. Um, how, how, yeah, yeah. Game, uh, <laughs> game three of the NBA Finals is in the books. And right out of the gate, the Nuggets said, how are you going to stop Nikola Jokic, Jamal Murray, two-man game, um, I did an entire video about this on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel. And when you log in to your YouTube, Cody, some, uh, not sometimes, all the time, they show you the three most recent comments really in your face. They put it right in your face. And before recording today, when I logged in, the comment was, what do you mean, can you stop the two-man game? The Heat stopped it in game two. And I'm like, have we reached the point where scoring 59 points with 14 assists and a 125 offensive rating. They shot 63% true shooting combined. Um, have we reached the point where that's stopping Jokic and Murray? That's how good this two-man game is. You asked me a couple episodes ago where the pick-and-roll component of it ranks in history. Um, it's hard to just cut it off because they run so much handoff as well and they'll even invert the pick and roll but my goodness this is this is spectacular Cody these these two guys now they're in a great ecosystem with the shooters around them but these two guys are playing offense in a synergistic manner the way they play off each other the height of Jokic's capabilities where he has like no weaknesses and Murray playing at this playoff level that we've discussed in past episodes i i don't know how anyone can slow them down. It's unbelievable. And I mean, we're not just talking about anyone here. Like, we're talking about Jimmy Butler, who, yeah, he's maybe lost a step in terms of his athleticism. But as you detailed in the previous Jimmy Butler video, his his ability to read passing lanes, his ability to court map defensively is as good as it's probably ever been. And Bam Adebayo, now, what, three straight second-team all-defenses? Hailed as maybe the most flexible defender. Draymond Green is obviously in that conversation, too. But Hailed is one of the most flexible defenders in the NBA. Like, these are two of the guys that are dealing with it. With Eric Spolstra coming up with the def- defensive schemes, Gabe Vincent come, can come out there and do some good defensive things. Kyle Lowry is just showcasing himself for, like, the Golden Glove Award with his hands in the paint. So, like, well, there's some good there's some good defensive personnel. And it just – they're at the mercy of – of what these two do because on one hand it's like oh okay so the Murray like pull up jumper from the mid-range just I guess it's just going to go in or oh we're going to send two to Murray and then all of a sudden Jokic is just going to kind of hang out 
10, 12 feet away from the rim, catch it, and then it's just over because there's absolutely nothing you can do. You rotate somebody like Vincent to him, and it's it's just barbecue chicken to take Shaq's words. Um, they literally have, and I hate to use the word bag here, but I'm going to use it here. They have every shot in the bag. Like, there isn't an offensive finish they can do besides just, like, turning Jokic into a lob threat. But I think he does more than okay making up for, for that lack of verticality. So, yeah. I don't know, Ben. I don't know. I think some people just see that the Heat win, and they're like, they stopped it, and that's the end of their analysis. Yeah. I think my favorite new game is to play, like, guess the stat line with these two guys because they it's just ridiculous. Let, let's, let's start. Let's see if I can trip you up. It's very difficult. Uh, oh, you might know this one because of the silly Game 2 narratives. Which, which Nugget player has 10 assists in every finals game? Has 10 assists in every finals game? Yeah. It's got to be Jamal Murray. Which Nuggets player is averaging 30, 33 points per game in in this series? That's got to be Jokic. That is Jokic. Which Nuggets player averaged 33 points per game in the last series? Uh, that's got to be Jokic. That's Murray. That's oh. right. I got you. I got you on one. Yeah, it's just like, what what is going on? And maybe, you know, we spend a lot of time on this show throughout the years talking about historical comparisons contextualizing the best of the best the best uh defenders the best offensive players we've talked about um the the best careers last summer we've done a lot and so Jokic gets in there because of his standing not just as a passer but as a big man and now as an overall offensive force but I think especially in the first half my bigger takeaway was just continuing to be impressed with how good Jamal Murray is, how well he's playing in this postseason. And I thought he was just bordering on spectacular last night. I do want to talk about his defense a little bit because that might have been the best defensive game I've seen him play. I thought he had just a number of big possessions defensively. The Nuggets did a lot of things we could talk about that was significantly uh, better than what they did execution wise in game two. But like Cody Murray's combination of shot making and decision making and just the feel and the flow in all of these actions, um, handoff, pick and roll, how to use like they know how to use each other so well. There's two plays in the video that, that jump out to me on that front One is Denver loves this pet cut that they run for Jokic. It's called a hawk cut where he sort of slices across the paint to catch it in the post. We've talked about it in different videos. And Bam and Miami, they really want to take this away. And so early in the game, one one of the first plays of the first quarter, I think, he jumps right in front of it and takes it away. And Jokic goes, okay, well, instead of cutting to the post... And have Murray, who's on the wing, feed me a post-entry pass. I'm going to reroute myself and just screen for Murray. And then Murray's going to do his dance. It's like when they front the post, Murray runs off Jokic as a, as a screener. There was a play later in the half where Murray came down on the left side. Jokic was going to post up, bam. Probably about, I don't know, 12, 15 feet away from the basket. Over on one side of the court that's cleared out. Murray, instead of throwing, he like hesitates to throw the entry pass and then turns that into a hezzy dribble to go right at Jokic and use him as a screen, get into the two-man game that way, and then he starts manipulating the defense. So it's interesting to me because he's not a Chris Paul or a Steve Nash or even a Luka Doncic as a point guard, 
but his feel for some of these things and the way they use each other really is spectacular. And maybe most importantly, and we've talked about this before with their skill set, their size, as you said, their bag, it feels very resilient to playoff type defenses that you throw at them because of the movement, the feel, the shot making, the passing, the cut, it just the screening, all of it put together. It's like, where's the weakness in that offensive duo? And, you know, I think the underrated part of it, you say the way that you put it is they just know each other so well. They play off each other so well. This is the importance of like building that chemistry over years. It's the same thing where you see with like Draymond and Steph Curry or Draymond and Clay Thompson with the running actions is half like Draymond doesn't even need to look sometimes. He just knows the guy's going to be there. And it's starting to develop to be that level of chemistry with these two guys because I don't remember exactly how many games they've played or how many seasons they've been really playing together, but basically their entire Nuggets tenure is together there. And, you know, after a while, you start knowing somebody so well that even if like in a vacuum, your skills aren't necessarily, like you said, not at like a Steve Nash level pick and roll pass or a Chris Paul level pick and roll passing, but knowing exactly where the guy's going to be is just going to make it that much easier to make those kinds of reads because you know the, how the guy's thinking. And I think the underrated part about what Jamal Murray's doing right now, we've talked about how he's been a spectacular three-point shooter in the playoffs. His mid-range jump shooting during these playoffs just unbelievable if you stack them up against some of the other best mid-range jump shooters during these playoffs we're talking like Kevin Durant shot about 58 percent from mid-range this is all from the thinkingbasketball.net uh thinkingbasketball.net database and I say 58 he shot 48 percent from mid-range during these playoffs Devin Booker 56 percent this is Devin Booker who we were talking about like (laughs) is this the best scoring playoffs we've ever seen Jimmy Butler is like 44 percent Trey Young around 44 percent we go down to Jamal Murray. He's shooting 52% on nine and a half mid-range jumpers a game. 52% on nine and a half jumpers. So like like you said, I don't even know which poison is best to pick because Jokic, you know, I don't have it right in front of me. Oh, I do have it. He's shooting 51% from mid-range. So do you give up like the high value mid-range jumper these two guys take? Do you let Murray get to the rim? Because I don't necessarily know if his rim finishing is at that level right now. I don't know. Like you said, there's there's just no way to play it. And I think that makes it such a resilient, potent two-man attack. The answer is definitely not let Jamal Murray get to the rim. Although I think that puts into perspective what we're dealing with here. Like, do you I want him take... Yeah, yeah. yeah, do you want him shooting a three, a mid-ranger? Or maybe we should let him get to the rim and see if we could challenge him. We tracked last night that, yes, we've got, we've got some in-house tracking now. Um, we tracked 43 possessions in the game where they ran two-man action. That's either a pick and roll or a dribble handoff. Last night, they actually inverted it only once. So that means um, the handoff action is coming from Jokic and the pick and roll action, Murray has the ball initiating. 43 times, they played like 70-something possessions together in the whole game. And a number of those possessions were in transition. So you're literally talking about in the half court, Defending that set, I don't know, 65, 70% of the time. And then some of the other half-court possessions where they were on the court were things like, oh, Aaron Gordon got a mismatch in the post, or Jokic has a cross match in the post. We're just going to go right there and start the possession. So it's not an exaggeration to say that on almost every half-court Nuggets possession, especially early in the game, they actually had more in the first half than the second half, they were looking to run 
something between these two guys, either in the middle of the floor or on an empty side. And it's just like, I don't know how you, def- I, I just, I really don't know how you defend it. Um, it, yeah, just speak, Cody. I've lost the, I've lost the power of speech thinking about this. I think the one thing too that made it so much more potent, Ben, if we talk about Christian Brown for a second. So Christian Brown, the element that he brings to this is his ability to stampede or like while you are cutting, you catch it and you're on the drive or like catch and drive or just as cutting in general, his ability to find those seams after somebody swings the ball, the ball to him just makes it so much tougher for Miami to set up because yeah, you have these two guys or you have this one guy that's able to run all this stuff. But on the weak side, somebody catches a ball and all of a sudden they're what six, eight, you got 2.30 coming at you. This guy's going to put his head near the rim and just wants to throw it down on absolutely everybody. I think he missed a huge dunk yesterday that he drew a foul on. But I'm thinking about there's one play, one play in specific where where Jokic gets it. I think usually he likes to set up against the zone, like near the nail, like kind of in the middle of the court. But on this particular play against the zone, he goes down to like the short corner a little bit, throws off the heat just a little bit because he's not the normal place he wants to set up. And they enter it down to Jokic, right? So on the weak side, the opposite side of the court, you have Jeff Jeff Green in the weak corner, you have Christian Brown in the weak wing here, like in the slot area. They both kind of cut at the exact same time. I don't know who it is from the Heat, but he's trying to split the difference. Jokic hits Brown, the Heat are completely bamboozled, and I think he throws down a dunk. So it's not just like you have these two guys running their two-man game, everyone else is standing around waiting for like a a catch-and-shoot opportunity, but you have all of these cuts, you have these guys like Aaron Gordon trying to find the mismatches in the paint, and I think all of that in concert together is just altogether what made it so much more impossible. And Ben, I this is why I don't coach. I don't know what you do to defend it. I'm watching it on my my TV, and I'm like, just run this every play. Just do have some kind of two-man action every play, and I don't know what the Heat are going to do. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. So that uh, zone setup was an adjustment from Denver in the previous games, they did have Jokic up at the top of the key. We talked about how in game two, in that middle of the floor, Miami was consciously trying to deny the entry pass to the high post. But in game three, and I think this happens when you play, especially this zone from Miami, which is such a cool amoeba-like, unique zone these days. Jokic, they put him uh, on the lower sort of corner part of the floor and emptied out that corner. And what that does is if you have the ball on the wing, if you put another player on the wing, it kind of forces Miami to commit to the ball and then maybe commit Bam Adebayo 
who's essentially guarding the basket in this zone configuration to Jokic. And then you get something that starts to look up, look like, oh, are we going to get a deep, easy Jokic post catch? Um, it was a trickier thing, I thought, for the Heat to defend on the fly. The Nuggets actually moved away from it, but they were running it a couple times when they started that zone. And I thought it was just a very comfortable, dangerous, deadly place to configure him and set up. So that, to me, was a clear adjustment in the game. Um, It wasn't a huge adjustment-heavy game. What it was was an execution game where, and we talked about this in the last episode, this series is going fast and furious. I've completely lost track of the days. I don't know what's going on. But basically, last game, Denver had issues with communication, especially on switches, and they had issues with closeouts, some very sloppy closeouts. And so the nice thing is you don't have to break your brain tactically. You just have to say, let's button these issues up. We've done it before. We do it most nights. Focus, get on the same page. I thought they simplified a few things defensively. They said, we're not going to do a ton of soft switching anymore. So you guys aren't here in these, all Miami's running all these, you described it last episode. Miami's got these gaggles, you know, got just hanging out. They're not even screening. They're walking into each other. They're circling in different directions. That creates confusion. If you are sitting there expecting a soft switch, then the offense can use that against you. In this game, the Nuggets were back to good old-fashioned, hard-nosed defense. They switched when they needed to, loudly and clearly and effectively. And the rest of the time, those guys were blasting through screens, trying to cut their man off, basically working hard and working smart. Most of their closeouts were much crisper. I thought the screen navigation, Murray was a big part of it. Christian Brown was a big part of it off ball. Aaron Gordon was a big part of it. Um, That was great. And I thought the last adjustment that I point out in the video is Jokic. We talked about Bam getting free on that pocket pass, rolling downhill and causing problems. So Jokic positionally brings himself up a step closer to the screen. And then both the screen navigator, the other defender, and Jokic are really sitting on that pocket pass. And if you slow it down on film, you'll see a ton of plays where he's reaching down with the hand. He actually sticks the foot out a couple times. The other defender is reaching into that pocket pass space and essentially saying, you know, they they did the same thing to some degree conceptually to Phoenix, essentially saying, hey, Gabe Vincent, Max Struess, are you Luka Doncic? Can you just skip it into the corner against two on the ball when our defense slides over and all this is happening very fast and you want to hit that pocket pass to Bam, but that window shrinks incredibly quickly. And as we take away that window, you have to not only react and be adaptive, but you also have to be proactive and think about how you're going to manipulate the defense. And that's not the strength of most of these players, even Butler, who I thought had a really nice playmaking game in game two. And so you put all that together, and I think Miami's defensive offensive rating in the game ended up at just over 100. Hmm. And I thought their shot quality, there were multiple possessions where they just really struggled to get good shots. And we talk about Jokic and Murray on offense, but I thought they had really good defensive games. I thought last night, if you wanted to have a clinic, if you wanted to have, maybe that's not the right word, if you wanted to have an example of a tape to show a non-believer to say, this is why Nikola Jokic is a 
sound positional defender. This is how he creates strength without being much of a rim protector and without being super switchable and lateral on the perimeter. I would show them that film last night because he switched when he needed to. He dropped when he needed to. He was at the basket when he needed to. He used his length when he needed to. He might have blocked. I think he may have only had one official block, but there was another player or two that could have been a block that's hard to see if he got his fingertips on it, bothering shots at the hoop. And he took away the pocket pass when he needed to. Uh, I just thought he played the angles, move and recover, and the positioning really, really well. And you put that all together, and that's all, that's all the Nuggets need with their offensive machine that they have. I got to say, I still get nervous when Jokic does his, like, he has such violent swipes. Like, there were a couple times, I think he followed Bam on one of them, and he's just, like, throwing his hand at him. Like, oh, my goodness, you're going you're gonna to draw the ire of some of these flopping kings out there from, from Miami. But I think it's really weird that this is, like, an analytical thing to say about basketball. But a really big key about this series that we're seeing so far from both sides and being able to counteract it and stuff is... If you're the defense, are you making it difficult for a player to catch the ball where he wants the ball? And if you're on offense, are you making it open for a player to catch the ball where he wants the ball? Like we talked about with the Jokic thing. Like, oh, instead of putting him near the top of the key where someone like Gabe Vincent or Kyle Lowry or Jimmy Butler, whomever is going to be there, is going to be pushing him around, let's just slide him down here for a second where there's not quite as much traffic. Or on on defense for the Nuggets. Like, are you just going to let Bam catch the ball in the middle of the court? survey make a rondo assist that kind of thing like be able to sit there and watch for everything else to develop or are you going to get some bodies in there to make sure that he's not able to make a clear catch i think jamal murray may have had a uh, a steal where he digs down and, and gets him on that for for a transition play but that's really the key is are you making it difficult just to even catch the ball because you know some of these guys are so good bam in the middle of the court Jokic anywhere once they have the ball, like that's already like 70% of what they want, right? They can kind of make it up as they go. But if you make that catch initially very difficult, that's where the game gets a little bit. Uh, that's the chess match that I think is really fascinating to watch. All right, here's the check-in. I think we need to have before we have the short turnaround before game four. Game four is going to start before we publish this podcast, probably. Um, <laughs> if you're Miami, what are your best avenues to create good shots on offense what are your best avenues on offense to create advantages right now in this series can i talk about a uh, a denver nugget player right now that i'm a little worried about that i think connects with this is it stalling to try to figure out where i i, ju- I just want to know i want to know how you'd rank the best ways for the heat to generate good offense right now i think that the best way is to find wherever Michael Porter Jr. is defending and run him through as many double-stagger DHO types of actions as possible. Because I feel like it was early on in the game. I actually thought the first half of the game, Miami looked pretty solid. I think they were only down by five at the end of the first half. I thought it looked good. I didn't think it was like fluky or shot variation or volatility. I'm sure you have some numbers that'll tell me I'm wrong. But from my eye test, just from watching it, that that's kind of how I was vibing it while I was going. But I know that there was a, a bucket early on where there's some kind of pick and roll. Michael Porter Jr. is defending the ball handler. Jokic is dropping back and, and MPJ is just he's just woefully underprepared chasing guys around screens and 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 catching up to them he's struggled yeah he's struggled and i think you know if you have a combination of him just he's got to see some balls go in he's got to psychologically see a couple of his shots go in because on the other side i think he can be targeted a lot so basically like if max struce is in whoever he's guarding just run him through the ringer that's uh, miami's best avenue on offense i think okay i guess my question here is 
do the Heat, uh, when they target someone, do you think they're going to do it more off ball? Because that will then come at the expense of Jimmy Butler targeting people on ball. And I do want to talk about that. And this is, this is why I'm teeing this question up for you. Yeah. Cody, like, like I assume your answers are going to pull from a Rolodex of Bam on a bio delay action at the elbow. Um, I'll give you Jimmy Butler mismatch hunting. Uh, I'll give you any of those guys in the post because you can get those. If you're Miami and you want to try to post up Butler and especially Autobio, you can get 10 or 20 possessions like that the way you want, just like you want. You can get Bam Autobio in isolation in the post. I guess we could say, uh, what did I, I said the delay stuff already. That's going to have Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero flying around. Um, I mean, Gabe, Gabe Vincent, empty side pick and roll. They ran a lot of that at times in the Celtics series. I mean, you tell me what you think the best avenue for them to create offense is right now. I want Bam to have the ball as much as possible in that sort of delay action. I want him to be the DHO hub. And then, like I said, because I don't think Michael Porter Jr. is going to be on Bam. That's just not the matchup we've seen. So then you can start having him run around. Like maybe he comes off, you know, a, an off-ball screen over here before coming to the, his man comes to get a handoff or something like that. If that doesn't work out, you can reset with Butler coming over, getting it. If he needs to mismatch on, he can do that. And I thought Bam has done reasonably well. If he needs to call on the mid-range jumper, you know, it's good enough that it's not like, oh, crap, this isn't the possession that we wanted to have. You don't want to call it as, like, the first option just because, you know, you need to be, like, a god-level mid-range shooter to make that happen. But it's at least good enough that if the clock's running down, he can make it. So I would like to see the ball in Bam's hands as much as possible with Jimmy, you know, at least somewhat involved. But plan A is Bam having the ball. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Okay, um, I buy that. I buy that. So then how do you feel about Jimmy Butler's mismatch hunting? He did it a lot last night. I think he took 24 field goals and a handful of free throws. Uh, he went after Murray. He had possessions against Christian Brown, which honestly makes me chuckle a little bit because Christian Brown's this rookie who – ended up starting to get minutes for the Nuggets because he's a big physical athletic defender. And I think because he's a rookie and his name is spelt weird and just his <laughs> appearance, you know, I think they were saying last night he looks like he's 15 years old or something. He's this, you know, Kansas uh, kid, kid from the, you know, the, the farmland or something. People don't associate how athletic he is with what he actually does on the floor. I think the first play I ever clipped 
from Christian Brown. The first time was earlier in the season. He comes in the game and uh, he's switched onto John Morant, who I think had his eyes just light up at this kid in front of him. And uh, he slides with John Morant and blocks his shot out of bounds. And that's kind of how I feel when I watch him go against Jimmy Butler. I'm like, okay, you're Jimmy Butler. You're stronger and you're more experienced. And you're, you're jump stop Jimmy. You're jump stop Jimmy. You could get anybody with that jump stop. But what are you doing? Why are you trying to attack Christian Brown? He's strong, he's quick, and he's long. And uh, yeah, it just it feels like between him and Murray, and you mentioned Porter, Porter is really having a rough go at it away from the ball with communication, with lapses. Um, but when he switched on to Jimmy Butler, he can use his length. And that's like the best place Michael Porter could be right now on defense is guarding Jimmy Butler in a one-on-one possession without needing any help. So how are you, how are you feeling about that as we go to the second half of the series here? All right, so tell me if you, you think I'm wrong on this. I thought that Jimmy did a reasonably good job scoring on pretty much anyone not named Aaron Gordon. Yeah, I, think, I, I disagree with that. You do disagree with that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, he had like what? two buckets against Murray maybe three I can't remember I can't be expected to remember the entire game off the top of my head but he has one on the baseline where he uses the little power push-off move that he likes with his left hand floats it up and that was a quick jump stop that was the the Butler quick jump stop where he goes right to the jump stop and then boop goes right up in the air and floats it in and then he had one uh in the other half where he backed down Murray on an isolated side closest to our camera on the sideline, backed him down, backed him down, backed him down. You remember this one? And then hooked around for the score, and, and Murray immediately went like he hooked me. I, I never saw a replay. I have no idea if it was a, a legit hook or not. Those were the two buckets I think he had against him. The rest of the night was not super easy. Sometimes they're sending help late. Sometimes they're not. I don't always know if they need to send help late in these matchups, but they talked about that a lot on the broadcast. They're, oh, anybody but Aaron Gordon. Um, I I didn't really feel that. I felt like if, if Miami is going to think their best opportunity to win on offense is for Butler to isolate against Jamal Murray, I don't think that's sustainable. I don't really think that's going to get the job done. Which is why I don't think it's an, an option A sort of thing. I'm just never like, a, we should go to the isolation mismatch hunting as like our plan A unless like you have LeBron James on your team and it's 2017, then maybe you can do the mismatch hunting like all the time. But for pretty much anyone else, you know, I think it's a, like I said, you start with Bam. If Jimmy gets the ball as a secondary action after that, then you can kind of do some of that mismatch hunting. But beyond that, sure, I think it's a good viable strategy at times, especially when it's like, I don't know, maybe near the end of the game. You don't want to worry about turnovers. It gets a little bit tighter, things like that. But um, no, I would say don't go away from Bam as much as humanly possible for Miami. Okay. You're going to get yourself in trouble with the uh, James Harden people if you say he's the only one who can who can mismatch. They built the whole offense around him mismatch hunting in isolation. So, all right. Um, what else? What else? What else do we need to talk about in this game? I'm, I'm happy to... We've been talking for 30 minutes about this game already. I'm, I'm happy to get our final thoughts and, and move right along to game four. Anything else on your radar that you want to discuss? So the, the Nuggets went on their giant run in the third quarter. 
And I don't know if you commented on it when I said it before. Did you think that Miami played them reasonably well in the first half? Like, do you think that was a bit of a mirage? Were you like, you know what? This was a competitive game. I do think that the run the bench unit made with Miami was a little bit more fluky. But I was like, I don't know. If Miami can replicate that first half, we can at least see some more competitive games. Did you did you see it as being like Miami was matching Nuggets intensity or just doing what they need to do to keep it competitive? I could not believe it was like a three-point game near the end of the half or whatever. And I think a lot of that was Miami making plays. They were very physical. And I thought that helped them throughout stretches of the night stay competitive. Now, a key for Denver is they match that physicality. If if you're going to have a high-intensity game where the officials allow more contact, and remember, basketball is a contact sport. It's okay to touch and bump into people and things like that. Um, if, if they're going to be consistent about that, I thought Denver started to match that intensity throughout the night. So it was a little smoke and mirror in the sense that I thought the Nuggets were playing really well for a lot of the first half, and that if that held up, it was going to be hard for the Heat to win, especially without some crazy three-point shooting outburst. But they weren't always getting the shots on offense. You know, the weird thing about this series is I believe the two wins so far for Denver, the Heat offense has been really subpar compared to league standards in this season, you know, like an offensive rating near 100 or something like that. Then in the one win Miami had, I remember it was a three-point game. I think both offensive ratings were over 125. So you had a much more efficient game, but the pace was a little slower. And yet a lot of people have this narrative of like, boy, they really stopped the Nuggets in game two. And then the Nuggets offense must have crushed it in the other two games. The Nuggets offense is always great. But I think if you're Miami, you... You're, you're not going to get them down to like 110 or 105 in offensive efficiency. It's just not going to happen. So your pathway to winning is like get them to 115 and do what you did in the other series. Butler gets hot. Uh, the three-point shooters do their thing, et cetera, et cetera. It's just a funny series so far in that the games have kind of played tricks on some of the narratives. Because as you know, after game two, it was very good that uh, Nikola Jokic scored 41 points. Uh, because then he wasn't a playmaker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed talking about that last game. Um, let me let me have a stat moment. Cody's stat time. Never, everyone knows this stat. I feel like if you exist in the world, you already know there's only been five playoff 30-20-10 games. Two of them were either Kareem or Wilt Chamberlain. The other three were Jokic. The wild thing to me is that two of those Jokic 30-20-10s are within the last month. Like, we've seen it five times in history, and Jokic has literally done it in the last 30 days twice. The other one is that the other two guys that did it, Wilt and Kareem, they both played full 48 minutes to do that. Jokic hasn't done that. I know that's probably not, like, the craziest thing, but I find that to be really fascinating. So that's my little stat nugget for the day. I, I want to do stat time because we've referenced it a number of times, so I wanted to get the official numbers up. We've talked about the wide-open three-point shooting the way Second Spectrum and NBA.com classifies it. That means that you are at least six feet away from the quote-unquote nearest defender when you shoot. You asked last time. In the first round against Milwaukee, Miami had 10 open threes per game, and they shot those at uh, 42%. That was actually the lowest number in the league of the 16 teams in the first round. Now, that doesn't include four to six feet. It doesn't include long jumpers. We're just talking about what NBA.com calls 
wide open threes. That's all we're talking about here. In the second round against the Knicks, that series that, as we've said, they they really struggled to generate good offense for basically all six games of the series. They had 14 open threes per game, and they made 38% of them, which is it's typically right around league average, 38% on their open threes. For some reason, no one in, no one in the second round shot well on their open threes, if you look at this data. It's very it's like a conspiracy. Um, in the conference finals, they had just about 10 a game, same as Milwaukee. So against Boston, they had just about 10 open threes per game, and they made 58% of those which is by far the highest in the tracking era in any given series that we've ever seen. Uh, and then in the finals so far, they are at 12, so only three games. So it's pretty similar, just a little bit more in terms of open threes. And they are making 49% of their open threes in the finals. Uh, 49% on 12 open threes a game. Denver is only getting seven open threes a game, making 41%. And the thing is, A, Denver does want to generate more open threes, but B, if they're getting post-ups for Aaron Gordon and Jokic and Miami's going to switch and Jokic is going to get another post-up there and Jeff Green and Michael Porter are going to cut to the basket and they're going to get layups and things like that, they'll take that all day over open threes. Jamal Murray, two-man game, get to eight feet, get a wide open little shot. I think they'll take that all day over wide open threes. So Cody, I don't know if you want to react to that, make of that what you will. That's that time to wrap up the episode. I, I don't know if this, I, it does. it's not meant to be condescending if it comes off this way. I don't think it is. I think I'm safe saying this. I appreciate that the Heat are doing that in some of those numbers, not just because of like, as we've seen the high volatility with it, but you make your own luck. Every element of the game has some aspect of luck to it every single part of it. And so if you're getting yourself that open that many times a game, great. If that's going to be the way that you're going to be successful, I appreciate that. So I, I appreciate how Miami has been able to feed into their own luck by getting themselves that many open opportunities. Don't you feel like game four? I mean, every time you go into a game four in a 2-1 series, it has that like, boy, this the stakes are really, really high because it's either 3-1 or 2-2. But there are plenty of series that go 3-1 where you still feel like the team can come back, especially depending on the home court. And then there are other series, and to me this is one where it's like, if Denver wins game four, it seems extremely difficult for Miami to win three times, twice on the road. Um, I could actually see Miami winning another game. It's just the three games in a row is pretty difficult. But on the flip side, because it's the heat, and because of what we've seen, if they were to find a way to win this game, and you always have to you know, see what it looks like on the actual court, what the actual product looks like, but man, doesn't that reinvigorate? Doesn't that put you right back into a like, oh, this series is tight. This series could go six or seven games. Am I the only one that feels that way? Do you have that sense of sort of drama and um, uh, I don't know what the right word is, pivot pointness about game four? I mean... Not not to go all heat culture thing here, but... Uh, Back on heat culture. It, it, hey, man, it keeps coming up. I don't want to give them, if you, I'm Denver... You brought it, you brought it up. 
It's it's look, it's this ephemeral thing that clearly maybe exists. I can, I can make fun of it all I want and still reference it as a thing. Is that like Oedipus? Did Oedipus destroy his own city and then come back and say, "Who did this to my city?" I'm not about to sit here in public and and compare myself to Oedipus. That's a that's a slippery slope down it, which I will not slide. Do I have the right point. character? Didn't he do that? He he did. Say say it again cuz I he destroy his own city. Maybe I'm thinking of something else that he ended up oh my uh, God. doing. That's that's what's he was in love with his mother. Yeah. Yeah. So but like on accident. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> what were we talking about? What, I oh, don't know. What, uh, you had a culture theory bed. about culture. I, <laughs> this is why this is what they wait for. They wait for us to get finished with the basketball and then it's just pure nonsense. The whole show devolves into chaos. Heat culture, let's hear your theory. Let's do it. it I just don't like if I'm Denver, I don't want to give I don't want to give Miami any shred of hope. And if they keep it close, they're going to keep going and thinking and knowing in their mind that they're the best team. So just the closer it is, the more you're like, man, you really got to lean Miami. And as somebody that's been like, I think Denver is going to win this in five or four. um, I think it's a dangerous gambit to be playing with uh, hashtag heat culture. If you want to support this show, check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Uh, I'm sure I have other things that I'm supposed to remind you of that can support the show and that's coming up and like things that are important to alert you of that we're working on. But I can't remember a thing right now, Cody, this this last few minutes of this podcast has uh, has really evaporated my my brain. It's evaporated my ability to think it's kind of, it's kind of like uh, quantum mania. Uh, that's how it feels in my head right now. Uh, thinking basketball, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Um, thanks as always for listening. We will be back at some point after game four uh, over the weekend to discuss what happened there. And um, otherwise, of course, wherever you are listening from, I hope you're enjoying the finals and that you are having a great day. 